You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Joe Toko Ingoa, no mai haere mai ki te waia mō tēnei rā. Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Ramere Friday the 9th of December. This week on the show, I'll be speaking to Fiona Tollick, a long-term campaigner and advocate for SMA, about Pharmax funding of Spinraza, a first-of-its-kind medicine for spinal muscular atrophy, the number one cause of genetic death in Kiwi children under two. I'm joined in the studio by my two producers, David and Daniel. Uh, Daniel, what will you be speaking about today? I spoke with uh, Meravilisi Yi and Labour Gaunafinaka about the effects of climate change on Fijian communities and the role of migration in the adaption to climate change. Awesome, sweet. We've got David here. He's just setting up his headphones. David, who will you be speaking to today? I spoke to Councillor Shane Henderson for our regular segment, City Councilling. Um, We spoke about the Auckland Council's group annual budget for 2023-24. I also spoke to Lachlan Keating from Deaf Aotearoa about creating New Zealand sign language videos for the 2023 census. We have a great show for you guys today, so keep it on the B for the next hour. Here aha or for Karo, would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces. So tuki we mai. You can text us in the studio on 5395. Why mai will give us a call in studio on 0930938798. Also remember you can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website. Now, let's get into the wire for Ramere Friday. Kei te whakarongo koe ki te wire, marunga irirangi po. The wire. Now, tell me about your father. City Councilling on 95BFM, our weekly chat with the good people of Auckland Council. Mayor Wayne Brown has released a draft proposal for the Auckland Auckland Council Group's annual budget 2023-24. It's comprised of small rates rises, reduction in council spending and asset sales. However, amongst the rush to balance the books, the cuts to council spending may place some key council services at risk. I spoke to Councillor Shane Henderson about the topic. I have is what are your thoughts about the Mayor's draft budget proposal? Yeah, so my first thought is that actually this is probably the biggest budget that Auckland's faced uh, in its time in the super city. Um, And I thought we were going to say that about last term with the COVID emergency budgets and all that kind of stuff. But really, we're facing a $295 million operating budget hole, uh, and we need need some advice basically from the public on how to fix that. And the Mayor's put out what his proposal is. We're kind of in the process of discussing and debating that at the moment, and then he'll sort of update that, and then we'll go to the governing body, which is our big uh, committee on the 15th of December. We'll vote on that, and then it will go out to the public for consultation over the, the summer. So something for the summer barbecue to discuss. It seems quite vague at this stage. When should Aucklanders experience more of a detailed version, or is it yeah, I think um, I, the next stage is, is to be presented to the uh, council back again. I think that's the stage where you'll be looking at things that are a bit more um, detailed. But at the same time, we've had some uh, detail come out through the press. Uh, so, for example, uh, looking at essentially cutting uh, early childhood centres that uh, council 
uh, operate, and that's been a controversial one, and I, I've seen a lot of commentary about that. So that's just an example. There'll be other examples as we go where things are controversial and will need to be discussed, and as a city, we'll need to come up with a plan for that. We do describe the initial ele- elevator pitch of this budget is small rates, rises, deep cuts, and selling a lot of shares. Yeah, I mean, basically, I would. So we're looking at, so the detail of that's really important. So looking at about $130 million of operating saving. And like I said, we'll come up with more detail later on what that actually looks like, because I think it's very important for Aucklanders to understand uh, what is being uh, saved or cut. And then looking at a, a rates rise, uh, which will end up in the back pockets of about 4.66%, uh, which is below inflation, uh, actually, and actually below the 5% rates rise that we went out with recently. So, um, yeah, I, I would say that. And, and finally, uh, looking at the airport shares, that's something that, you know, again, as a city, we need to discuss. I think the mayor's made kind of no secret about his dislike towards CCOs, given his choice words towards the Auckland Art Gallery recently. Should Auckland Unlimited institutions such as the Maritime Museum and the Zoo and Auckland Stadium, should they be worried or should they be looking over their shoulder? Yeah, you've brought up a really important point there about the art gallery and the Maritime Museum and so forth. Through all of this, you know, we didn't get elected to just balance a budget and make cuts. We were actually elected to provide a beautiful future for the people of Auckland and a really fantastic, wonderful place to raise a family. We shouldn't forget some of the reason why we're here, which is to really produce these amazing things. And the Art Gallery, the Maritime Museum, all the rest of it, they all provide huge service for Aucklanders and their quality of life. So it's not just about the cost of living, it's about the quality of life as well. Uh, So, you know, frankly, it's not the kind of words that I would have used. You kind of touched on it before. There's a lot of stories about scrapping Cody Kids' childcare centres. Is this likely to go ahead? Yeah, it's something that I'm very concerned about, and I I think there are a few that are sort of looking very carefully at that proposal. I'm unconvinced at the moment that that will actually save us money, and that's kind of the number one yardstick of why you would look at making any kind of savings or cuts to council at this stage. I'm not interested in kind of an ideological argument on what council should or shouldn't do. I want to look at the dollars and cents of it, and I'm just not convinced at the moment that it would save any money. But we're going to be really examining that. Like I said, we're examining that as a council, and we're going to... um, hopefully come up with a bit more detail later about that. There's been a lot of talk about shifting a lot of these council-run services over to to save money over to the private sector. Is that, there was what I was reading before, was they cost $200,000 at a loss every year, but it, it could potentially make money if it's in the private sector. Do you think there's any truth to the fact that they're going to be shifting a lot of the stuff over to the private sector? Yeah, that's just the kind of ideological argument that I'm not, I'm not personally really into. You know, it doesn't really uh, matter to me, frankly, what councils should or shouldn't be doing. Uh, I think the public sector has a huge role to play in these kind of services. And especially when you're providing uh, services for low-income families, for families that are doing it a bit tough, and, and also families that just want a community option. You know, I think that's a really good thing. So we need to be really careful about what we do in that space, I think. A lot of Auckland libraries are are fantastic and they're a real credit to the community in which they sit, not just the central city library, but a lot of the kind of small outerlying libraries. Would they be up for consideration as well? Yeah, it's some of the questioning that I've been asking uh, and I'm yet to sort of receive advice about that around libraries. But what I can say is that There's been some well-canvassed proposals to cut budgets to local boards, which is kind of the governance tier that looks after local services in Auckland. They have a huge uh, input into the library services there as well. And so I do have some concerns that, you know, libraries aren't necessarily safe. 
And for me, that's kind of something that wouldn't be acceptable. I think we need to be protecting our libraries. They're just so important, and particularly in times like these. What are the next steps? Are you, are you able to tell me the next steps again? Yeah, no worries. So um, basically we're going to vote on this uh, on the 15th of December. Uh, then it will go out to the public and we'll ask them uh, their advice. And I think one of the things we need help on is the broad brush uh, issues. Um, basically every budget in the history of the world is balancing your rates versus balancing the level of service that you want in your community. So what we want to hear from Auckland is, is how much rates do you want to pay versus how much services do you want? That's really the balancing act. Yeah, the balancing act usually is if you want the yeah, as you said, if you want these services, you're going to have to pay for them. So right. it's going to have to be a big conversation between. If you don't want to pay for it, we're going to have to cut it. We're yeah, going to have to much. raise raise rates elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've there's been talk about um, efficiencies, which you know is fairly magical spackle um, these days. We've made a hell of a lot of efficiencies as a council to the tune of over a billion dollars in the value for money uh, space. There's just not much more there. I mean, it, it gets to a point where, you know, you're looking at services and do you want council to provide it? Um, that's really the end of it. That was City Councillor Shane Henderson talking about the draft proposal for the Auckland, Council's gr- Auckland Council Group's annual budget 2023-24. Have you tried mindfulness? Try mindfulness. City Councilling on 95BFM. I don't know how to say this. Bitterly goose scale? <laughs> You're not a child of the 80s. If you were, you would know the film with a similar name. The star is Beetlejuice. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> the Wire. Biogen will announce that Spinraza, a first-of-its-kind medicine, is the first medicine funded by Pharmac for spinal muscular atrophy, the number one cause of genetic death in Kiwi children under two. SMA is a rare genetic disease that can have a devastating and life-changing impact. In its severe forms, SMA can cause uh, paralysis uh, and difficulty with the most basic functions of life, like breathing and swallowing, with babies and children possibly unable to hit major motor milestones, such as rolling, sitting, crawling, standing, or even walking. I spoke to Fiona Tollick, a long-term campaigner and advocate for SMA, as well as a trustee of Patient Voice Aotearoa, about how significant this is. Here she is now. Well, it's, I mean, it's great news. Um, I, I wish it had have come years ago. Um, we were on an even playing field with Australia back in 2018 when the, uh, both countries had an application to fund it and Australia funded it and children had access that same year. Um, and it was amazing news back then. I, I think it's, it's exhausting to think of what we went through just to, just to save our kids here. Um, and, that's, and that's what it is. That's why it's so significant. It is a life-saving and changing medicine um, and one that we should never really have had to fight so hard to get because it does save lives. Um, in New Zealand, the average age of death is 13 months old for type 1s, which 50% of all kids born with SMA are type 1. So it's a very serious um, and devastating disease. So um, there is a strong sense of relief that finally um, our kids have an option. Now, you yourself are obviously very, very familiar with the impact that SMA has on children. Mm. For those who may not be aware what SMA is... Could you just give us an understanding of how severe it is and how it impacts children? 
sure. So it's often labelled uh, baby motor neuron disease because that, that's essentially what it is. It is a motor neuron disease. So with this, um, the, the children's muscles are perfectly healthy, but the messages stop being sent through. So what happens is in most severe cases, um, babies lose the ability to move their arms, to move their legs. In type 1s, they'll never sit they'll never hold their head up and ultimately breathing and swallowing is impacted, which is, is when they uh, pass away. Um, in type 2s, um, they, uh, they will never stand or walk. Um, and in type 3s, they'll walk. But um, because it's a progressive disease, um, the body deteriorates. So everything, every milestone essentially that they, they reach slowly or fast uh, gets taken away from them. So in the time since the application went through, um, children have had feeding tubes inserted, they've lost the ability to walk, they've lost the ability to roll, they've lost the ability to crawl, um, some have had spinal rods inserted into their, into their backs to stop their spine from collapsing because of the weakness in the muscles around the spine. So it's, it's, it's incredibly cruel um, because cognitively these children are very sharp and very aware and, and they know what's happening to their body and they know what, what the future holds, which, which is incredibly scary when you consider that that could be stopped. Now, in the past, what has been the situation with treatment for SMA? Have children or anyone really dealing with SMA been able to get sufficient treatment for this disease? There, there has been nothing available. So internationally, there are three treatments available. So there is Spinraza, which was the first to come to, to market in 2016. Uh, there has been an oral therapy, um, which was more recently available. And now there's also a gene therapy. So to give it a bit of context, in New Zealand, there was nothing. And in Australia, there were all three options. So 25% of the kids um, that that um, are in the New Zealand uh, population with SMA, they are actually living living as medical refugees in different countries and many of them, um, their families took them across to the likes of Australia um, in the mid middle of a global pandemic so they lost connection with their family and they lost that support network and it was an incredibly sad yet brave uh, call for those who were in a position where they could financially actually make that move um, to start a new life and, and away from that fam their family and friends. Spinraza is the first of its kind medicine. Could you tell me a bit about this? Yeah, sure. So, so essentially, um, what it, what it does is it allows um, the body to continue to produce the protein that it needs to ensure that the nerves don't don't die. So, what's unique about um, SMA, is, I suppose, is that we have, um, we're, we're missing a gene, the SMN1 gene, but there's a backup copy of that gene, which is the SMN2. So it produces protein, but just not as much and not as good a quality. So essentially it's a targeted therapy to bolster that backup gene to, to make it as strong as possible to stop stop deterioration um, in those that have SMA. But it's remarkable um, and, um, you know, it, it's fantastic that through modern science and incredible research, they were able to pinpoint exactly what is going on for those that have SMA. And obviously this, this announcement comes with various other additional funding announcements from Pharmac, sorry, mm -hmm. Men and Cockle, B vaccine, uh, Bexero, uh, Trikafta obviously receiving funding. Is this all very, very like a long time coming almost for all these different medicines to finally get the, the funding that they need? 
Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the cancer treatment that was announced um, yesterday as well, I mean, that's old. I mean, that that is on the World Health Organization's essential medicines list for both capsule and infusion. Now, we funded it for infusion, but not the capsule form. That has been sitting on Pharmax list for 15 years, to my understanding. Now, that's a really long time. And when you do think about, um, you know, these announcements, yes, it's, it's great, but... The challenge is that there's still 73 medicines that are sitting on that wait list. And when you think about the, the level of begging, the amount of advocacy, uh, the patients that are exposing themselves you know, so vulnerably um, to, to, to try and get access for them and their community, it's, it's a real tragedy that we're having to do this in New Zealand when ultimately if we actually just funded these medicines it would take so much pressure off the health system, it would take so much pressure from the, off the social welfare system because you would actually keep people well and out of hospital and contributing to the economy as opposed to spending more to keep them sick. So I, it's a little bit backwards in that we don't calculate the value of the medicine when you look at the wider perspective because we don't look at indirect costs. Now that's a little bit um, you know, hard to sort of get your head around but essentially the Ministry of Transport is a, is a great example. They value a life at 20 times more than what Pharmac does because they take into consideration all of those additional costs that Pharmac don't when they look at the value of something. So that's why, um, and I'm sure there's plenty of complaints around the, the quality of our roads, but that's why they would make decisions around um, the upkeep of roads, where to put um, traffic lights, where to put extra signs, all of that stuff, because they know that that would save lives and save injury and save harm. Um, so they do calculate all the costs of not doing something. So that's what we really need to focus on from a Pharmac perspective. They need to follow Treasury guidelines um, which they don't, um, and they need to calculate the true value of a medicine. So it actually makes more sense to New Zealanders. We'll, we'll, our tax will be much better spent in keeping people well out of the hospital system and off the benefit because they'll be contributing well members of society for longer. Is there any resources people can use or go to so they can learn more about SMA? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, um, I, I run the SMA page on Facebook, which is SMA NZ. They can go there. Um, Muscular Dystrophy Association of New Zealand is, is the official uh, charity that covers, um, I think, around 70 different um, conditions. Um, and if they are someone that is impacted um, by SMA uh, directly themselves, then um, absolutely their neurologist would be somebody who would be able to give them access to information. But if they're interested in knowing a little bit more about our journey and, and what we've done, um, then certainly the SMA NZ page on Facebook, we would welcome them to. It's an open community there. That was Fiona Tollick, a long-term campaigner and advocate for SMA, as well as a trustee of Patient Voice Aotearoa, speaking about Spinraza being funded by Pharmac. The Wire. You're on The Wire for Ramede Friday. Remember, you can text us in 5395 or give us a call on 0930938793. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you have heard so far. We'll be right back after this short break. Nestfest is back for 2023 with a massive lineup featuring Action Bronson, Pond, Automatic, Winston Surfshirt, Methyl Ethyl, Half Hexagon, Nanoise, and many more. We're giving away tickets, so if you want to win, suss your B card and stay tuned to 95 BFM Breakfast all this week. 
95 BFM presents Nest Fest, January 14th at Tormoana Showgrounds in the gorgeous Hawke's Bay. Get your tickets now from moshticks.co.nz. What's a seven-letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club there's... Speech Axe Theory, live, followed by Killer Manraro and Grantis. And tomorrow... Leandro Vasquez, live, followed by Junior and Bobby Brazuka. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Audio. Culture. Tune in to 95BFM Drive every second Tuesday as they're joined by one of our friends from Audio Culture, sharing the songs, stories and salacious scandal from which is woven the mighty tapestry of New Zealand music. Audio Culture, more cultured than a blue cheese with a BA. Every other Tuesday on 95BFM Drive. Thanks to Audio Culture. Iwi Waiata, the noisy library of New Zealand music. Go to audioculture.co.nz. What's up? This is Tajay of the Mighty Souls of Mischief Crew. I'm chilling with my man Festo, my man A Plus, and my man Oh, you know he's dope. And right now, you know, we're just maxing in the studio. We're hailing from East Oakland, California, and um, sometimes it gets a little hectic out there. But right now, you know, we gonna love you on how we just chill. Yeah. 
should New Zealanders care so much about this? Because your children will curse you if you don't. The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire for Ramere Friday. I will now pass it over to Daniel. Rising sea levels forces Fiji's villages to relocate. For years, politicians and scientists have been talking about a future of migration caused by climate change. In Fiji, this migration has already begun. The question is now how to actually do it. I spoke with... Mera Walisi Yi, who, who is Fijian and is pursuing a PhD at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. We spoke about the situation in Fiji. Her project seeks to understand human migration in Fiji caused by climate change and the role of mobility in climate change adaption. Why is Fiji so susceptible to the impacts of climate change? You know, Fiji, Fiji is, is made up of more than 300 islands and, and the two major islands majority of the communities, they are coastal communities. They're located at in, in areas that are vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, such as uh, sea level rise, coastal erosion, saltwater intrusion. And on top of that, uh, Fiji also lies in the path of uh, the tropical cyclones. So with with the impacts of climate change and then those uh, rapid impacts of natural of natural disasters it just makes fiji um you know more vulnerable um to these changes in i think in 2016 in the last 5 years or so fiji has had two uh, has been uh, hit by two major cyclones category 5 tropical cyclones uh one in 2016 tropical cyclone winston and the other one in 2020, tropical cyclone Yasa. Those are two category five cyclones. And then we had COVID pandemic, which even just exacerbated the impacts of, of, of climate impacts. Yeah. And how has climate change driven migration of Fiji villages in the recent years? Um, so, you know, after 2016, after tropical cyclone Winston hit Fiji, the category five one, the government of Fiji carried out a vulnerability assessment, and that's where they announced that more than 800 communities in Fiji are vulnerable and, and in need of relocation, more than 800 communities. Out of that 800, 40 are prioritized. They urgently need to relocate. And so far, as of 2022, as we speak, six Communities have been relocated, and I think two are in the waiting list. Relocation is is the last resort after all, you know, adaptation uh, measures in situ has been 
are exhausted. So relocation is the last resort. But then, you know, now they, there's evidence that for some communities, it's said to say that they will have to resort to, to relocation. It will become inevitable for them. But then again, like in terms of relocation, there are some communities, there will be some communities that will choose not to relocate. Yeah, what are their, their motivation? You know, for us in the Pacific, our connection to our land is, is something that we hold very dear to our heart. You know, these, you know, for us, land is not just a physical um, physical dimension, like the way the Western uh, perceive the meaning of land. It's not just, you know, uh, a region or a spot. We, we are going to publish a paper on um, a village called Serua Island. This, this community has been earmarked to relocate, but they choose freely not to relocate. And, and the reason, one of the reasons for them not choosing to, to stay is their connection to their land. And this is something that needs to be incorporated moving forward when, when government or implementing agencies, when they come into the communities, this is something that needs to be embedded in the relocation process. We need to take into account these intangible connections because for us in the Pacific, in Fiji, when you talk about migration, when you talk about relocation, it's more than giving up material possessions. It means much more than that, yeah. Mm, is, is that the biggest challenge villagers yeah. and communities experience? Yes, for some communities, um, it's that connection to their land, the connection to their um, livelihoods, their sacred grounds, their, you know, they fear that if they do relocate, they do move, it dislocates them, it breaks that bond and that connection to, to, to their land. And with land comes their sacred ground, their cultural heritage, uh, their traditional knowledge, traditional medicinal knowledge. So it's more than just giving up those material possessions like your house. It's totally different from the Western perspective. Do you do you know people that had to relocate? Uh, well, with my PhD uh, um, research, I visited one, two, three, four, four communities. So my my research is is trying to is is trying to look at the different uh, types of uh, relocation and trying to figure out better practices to move people so that when they do move, you know they move you know in a holistic way. It's not that they are moving and then where they end up there's you know vulnerability does not reduce but increases even or worsens for them so i have been to four communities so i looked at four communities at different uh, stages so my first community that's the paper we're going to that's going to be out it's going to be published probably next week from the frontiers journal 
is looking at Serua Island. So this community is earmarked for relocation, but they choose not to relocate. They want to remain on the island for as long as that they can uh, protect the island. And then I have another community that the second one that we're going to publish next year is another village in Fiji that's planning to relocate. And then my third village is a village that's relocated, but they relocated on their own without the help of government. And my last case study is a village that's already been relocated. So I'm looking at this whole spectrum of relocation, the different stages, the challenges, the constraints, you know, the enablers that will allow people to relocate, but, you know, take into account, you know, relocate in such a way that they are safe from the impacts of climate change and disaster, but at the same time, they get to preserve their way of life. Mm. And what are some of your findings in the in the in your research? How how do you in a can you relocate in a holistic way? Well, the first well at the moment the first one I can talk about right now is the paper that we're going to publish is you know when 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 you want to relocate a community first and foremost you must acknowledge you know you must acknowledge and you know, the values and the perspective of the, of the people affected. You need to have full, get them, get their full participation in, in implementing that project of relocation. Because at the end of the day, you know, they they are the ones that, that's experiencing the, the problem or the, the impacts of climate change. So the closer they are to the problem, I think, they are the closest to the solution as well. So that is one of the key takeaway from our first paper, that it's so important to, to, to always take on board the people that are affected, their, you know, their perspective, uh, their, their you know, valuable insights. That was Meravalisi Yi from the University of Queensland explaining her research. I also spoke with Leba Ganavinaka who is a climate change adaptation specialist at the Fijian Ministry of Climate Change. She is part of a special government task force in Fiji that has been trying to work out how to move the country's communities. The result of the task force is a document called The Standard Operating Procedures for Planned Relocations. It's a plan trying to tackle one of the most urgent problems of the climate change. How to relocate communities whose land is soon inhabitable. Why is uh, this such an important document? Fiji launched its um, planned relocation guidelines in 20, COP24 uh, in Poland, right? That is, uh, it's like responding to the need of communities that have requested to be supported by the state to relocate to safer grounds. Okay, so it's also part of our effort to um, for climate adaptation you know, interventions that can help these communities and build, building resilience in these, uh, you know, most impacted villages. Uh, but specifically this, this planned relocation guideline, we've already been, we've already started relocating communities before the guidelines. There became a need to have that enabling environment at the national level, the policy um, arrangements that can drive, effectively drive and govern this work. Okay, so we're not just responding to it ad hoc, like when there's a disaster and we um, 
make the relevant assessments and we determine that if a site is inhabitable or it will frequently have this sort of extent of impact and they relocate based on that ad hoc request. So we wanted to have like a national, uh, nationally recognized, you know, uh, guideline to help that work. Huh? That was why we had uh, we had the plan relocation guideline developed, but it's a guideline. It's like, um, you know, it, it lays out the principles that need to be followed, that need to be embedded, uh, that need to be considered when you're relocating these communities. Huh? And it's it's essentially like a framework, a, a general guide. Now, what we needed beyond that, what we needed are the specific details on how exactly we we're doing this. And that's the that's where the need for a standard operating procedure comes in. How how do you do that democratically? We need evidence that majority of the residents require that. In the SOP, it mandates that we require 90% of consent to trigger the process. Not consent to relocate, consent to trigger. So for government to consider the request, it requires 90% of people that are living in that affected community before we come in with our the whole process goes into play. Even when you trigger the process, throughout the screening and scoping phase, they can always pull out. They can always say, oh, uh, we changed our mind. And we, we don't what did you it. notice with the six communities that already relocated? Some of the communities say when they have relocated to the new site, because you relocated them from a coastal community and took them inland. The site was considered safe, but you changed their livelihoods. You know, it's not just like change like uh, relocating houses, you know, we relocated lives and their livelihood changed. They were used to, you know, depending on the sea, but then you move them inland. And of course, from that, there were dissident residents that said, we did not really want uh, relocation. But what we're putting in, in place now is an actual form where you verify an another principle of relocation is uh, the those in the guideline is having ensuring that it's a lively livelihood based approach. Um, what what is what do you mean with a livelihood based approach? Yeah, so ensuring that the plan relocation pr process needs to be sensitive uh, to the specific needs of communities and households that are on that may be on the move. Eh? So so we have community profiling as part of GIS. We do a thorough comprehensive risk vulnerability assessment. And the team that is doing that assessment includes agriculture, fisheries, forestry, the livelihood uh, sectors to assess and ensure that the livelihoods at the new site would be sustainable, to ensure that they have livelihood opportunities and that it is uh, not like a drastic change from what they had. What could, other, have... what could other countries learn from this plan to tackle climate migration? It has to thoroughly address the situation, the context of the country. But we didn't set out, you know, trying to compare it with other countries. It was essentially to make it as relevant and suitable as possible in the context of Fiji. What are the challenges for Fijian villagers if they have to relocate? Of course, like for us, you know, Fijians, it's a big, it's a big thing, but we've, we're, we've always been moving and migrating. That's kind of part of the culture. If you hear, like for us, we 
we live here in the city, in the urban centers. We are from the outer islands in the second furthest island, for me, for example. It's it's something we've always had. But you kind of like, you know, you, you we are used to moving places, moving for other, you know, economic opportunities and other things, internal movement. But this case is unique. It's different because you're actually moving a whole village. And there have been cases before in, in the past where you where whole villages move for similar reasons. There was a major landslip or there was like a major hazard that you know destroyed a lot of the village and they moved on their own and some still do to this day without requesting state state support they move people to a nearby land that they've you know coordinated between neighboring clans to move people to that still happens but here we're talking about like state supported you know like the state will finance all of that so it, it it's kind of you know really detaching yourself from your heritage from the land that you your the land of your ancestors so that of course is the major challenge that is the number one reason why people hesitate to relocate it's that attachment to that place and for us it's a big thing it's a big deal to we have our land is like part of our identity for them, that 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 is the number one. <laughs> I would say that cultural impact is the number one, um, the, the most difficult challenge. That was Labour Ganifinaka sharing the plan she helped making how to relocate Fijian communities on a national level whose land is in inhabitable because of climate change. We don't agree with violence. We do not agree with the government. Ah! No, we do. The Wire. You're in The Wire for Ramede Friday. Remember, you can text us in at 5395 or give us a call on 0930093879. We'll be right back after this short break. Well, when the sun goes down and the moon comes up
is on. Sharon Van Etten and her full band are playing at Auckland's magnificent Civic Theatre on Monday, December the 12th. Sharon Van Etten is one of this century's great songwriters. With a live show described as nothing short of stunning, come and witness a legend being written in real time. With support from Nadia Reid, we'll say it again, this is quite simply unmissable magic. Wellington is sold out. Grab the last remaining Auckland tickets now from Ticketmaster. Summer Haze is bringing a world-class lineup to Matakana and Tauranga. With Fat Freddy's Drop, Shapeshifter, Black Comet, and King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you want to win tickets, and we know you bloody do, then just listen to 95 BFM Drive all this week for your queue to enter. But you've got to have a B card. Summer Haze, December 29th at Whareapai Domain, Tauranga, and January 4th at Matakana Country Park. Tickets from summerhazenz.com. The government has indicated a The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire for Ramere Friday. I will now pass it over to David for our last piece of the show. Stats New Zealand has created 80 New Zealand Sign Language videos for the 2023 census. The project was a joint collaboration between the deaf community, Deaf Aotearoa, and Victoria University of Wellington. They hope this will make deaf people feel more included around census time. I spoke to Lachlan Keating from Deaf Aotearoa about the topic. What kind of work has Deaf Aotearoa been doing in the creation of these sign language videos? Deaf Aotearoa uh, wrote to the Minister for Statistics, James Shaw, in 2018 because we were very concerned that the census in 2018 wasn't accessible for, for deaf people and the needs of the deaf community hadn't been considered in developing the census. So it's been a long process for us and, and we received a positive response from Minister Shaw and he said he would direct his officials to engage with Deaf Aotearoa um, and we've been engaged with his officials um, throughout the period, uh, the last four or five years. We've provided a lot of advice um, to ensure that officials and, and those involved with developing the census understood the access issues that deaf people face every day. And that's particularly around accessing information in, in English, which is often a second or even third language for deaf people. And we emphasise the need for the census to be available in New Zealand Sign Language, um, information about the census, but also information, well, including all the questions in the census to be available in New Zealand Sign Language. This is a, a huge project and a great commitment that, that we've seen unfold and, and be delivered. So we really appreciate the work that's gone on. A number of deaf people were involved. Deaf producers of video video resources have been involved with also New Zealand Sign Language experts to ensure that the translation of information from English into New Zealand Sign Language was carried out effectively and that Keeping in mind that the structure, the sentence structure and grammatical structure of New Zealand Sign Language is quite different from that of English. So it requires quite a lot of work and quite a lot of consultation between the deaf and sign language experts to ensure the information is presented in an accessible way. How does it normally feel for deaf people when they're trying to fill out a census? Uh, they feel excluded in, in many, many cases when they're only provided with an English option. Uh, as I said, English is often a second or third language for, for deaf people. And what's happened here, it's a real life changer 
and find difficult being recognised and their language being recognised and, and difficult being valued. And, and now able to make a full and proper commitment and contribution to the census. But this is quite a common barrier for the deaf community with a real lack of information available in New Zealand sign language. Certainly in, in the years since the pandemic started, uh, there's been a, a significant increase in the availability of, of government information in New Zealand sign language. And there's certainly a long way to go. You have to excuse me, this is probably going to sound like a really ignorant question, but how does having someone doing New Zealand sign language videos help compared to, say, captions? Well, again, with captions being in English, so that the captions don't necessarily make information more accessible for, for, for deaf people who have New Zealand sign language as, as their first language. Uh, they, captions are, are certainly uh, useful and, and um, increase access for people who are what we might term hard of hearing. They are people with often with mild to moderate hearing loss, but for whom New Zealand sign language isn't their, their chosen or, or um, native or preferred language. They, they are often people who've become um, deaf or lost their hearing later in life and do not use New Zealand sign language as their primary or, or native language. So captions are useful for hard of hearing people, but the deaf community, people for whom New Zealand sign language is, is often their first language, they require access to be through New Zealand sign language and resources to be provided in New Zealand sign language. What kind of a difference do you think this will make? I think it will make a significant difference. Deaf people will now approach the census fully informed and they'll be confident uh, completing the census and, and they'll be able to complete the, sentence, uh, the, the, the questions and respond to the questions and provide full information and fully informed responses. So I think deaf people will be, will be very proud and very, very um, confident that they make a contribution to, to the census and, and to uh, the work that unfolds from the census once the government has um, compiled and, and examined all the data. Do you often get deaf people filling out a census? Yes, we do, and often deaf people are supporting each other or they're, required, they're relying on, on hearing members to help them complete census and other forms that they're required to fulfil, uh, fill out through their, through their daily lives. So having the census available in New Zealand Sign Language means deaf people can complete the census um, independently without outside assistance. How common are New Zealand Sign Language videos in everyday life or in everyday situations? Relatively uncommon, uh, but as I said before, certainly there's been an increase through the pandemic. Uh, deaf Ultras produced, I suspect, to be close around between four and 500 videos of um, COVID-19 information since the pandemic began. But across government, um, there's been certainly an increase in, in, in the use of New Zealand science videos across some of the major ministries, such as the Ministry of Health, the new Ministry of Disabled People, FICAHA, Ministry of Social Development, Ministry of Education and, and, and those larger ministries that, that deaf people often have to access information from. There's still a long way to go, but it's good to see that in many cases government agencies have certainly turned the corner and now becoming more responsive to the, to the needs of deaf people for New Zealand Sign Language as their primary or native language. How is the production of these videos going so far? Have they started? Yes, it, it's, it's been completed. It's a, it's a significant project and each one of the questions when the, the internet civil team and the deaf expert team work on this project, get together, they would need to look at every, every sentence and every word of every sentence to ensure that they understood what was being asked and then to ensure that they could translate the English information into New Zealand Sign Language to ensure that the New Zealand Sign Language users, the deaf community, understood the question. Because as we know in English, some words have, have more than one meaning and often it depends on, on the context of the sentence, which, which gives meaning to the, uh, the context of the sentence and the other words in the sentence, which gives meaning to, to, to particular words. So a, a significant amount of work goes into each question to ensure that each question is translated appropriately and effectively.
That was Lachlan Keating from Deaf Aotearoa talking about New Zealand sign language videos for the 2023 census. That was The Wire. Ko ira te hōtaka katoa mō tēnei wiki, me te mīiki a koutou katoa e kōrero mau ki rā. That is a wrap on The Wire for Rāmere Friday. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us. Fiona Tolik, a long-term campaigner and advocate for the SMA. Uh, Danielle, who spoke to Meta Walisi Yi, a PhD student at the University of Queensland, as well as Leiba Gona-Vinaka, who is a climate change adapt- adaptation specialist at the Fijian Ministry of Climate Change. Shane Henderson for our regular segment, City Counselling, as well as Lachlan Keating from Def Aotearoa. And thank you to Danielle and David for your excellent producing today. Welcome. You're welcome. Kia ora. <laughs> All good. Uh, next week is uh, our last week of The Wire for the year. Um, we've got Best of the Wire coming up next week. Fellas, what has your rating been for this year? Favourite things? Not so favourite things? Any any comments? This is my first time doing The Wire and I've loved it. So I'll have a difficult time trying to pick a favourite best of. And Danielle, you've, you've only True. been doing The Wire for a, a few weeks now. Yeah, four weeks I think. So I don't have that much to choose from. But there are plenty to choose from because your work has been excellent. Uh, thanks for tuning in. You are listening to 95BFM. I'll now leave you with the one to two, the land of the good groove. Matewa. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95bfm.com slash sign up.